So um, this morning, uh, if you have your Bibles, we will be obviously in uh, 1 Samuel. And so before we get there, I'm going to start a little differently this morning. And I want to read to you out of John chapter 15 as we start this morning. This is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants anymore because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything I have heard from my father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce fruit and that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask in my name, he will give you. This is what I command you, love one another. Words of Jesus and an interesting phrase of, I call you friends. He's been with his disciples for a while now, and this is the first time he's called them by this. This is the first time he's used this word friend, and it's an amazing thing because I think in our world, we think of friendships in our life, um, and we know the value that they have, but I was listening to... um, well, reading uh, an author that I've, I've read before, but he talks about five different things uh, that are pivotal to growing our faith. And he talks about things like um, pr- private like disciplines that we do on our own, practical teaching, pivotal circumstances, things like that. But he says the one thing that is really, that helps us grow is providential relationships, or I would say friendships. And this morning, you're going to hear this idea of what a friendship is, and I think we're actually going to be able to see that Jonathan is actually going to be kind of a a type of Christ in how he is a friend to this guy named David. Um, I I have a friend like that. I don't know if you do, that's this really close friend that that no matter what's happening in your world, no matter what's happening in your life, they're just there. Um, And so about two weeks ago, I got to talk with him again. Um, He was actually in Dubai, of all places, and uh, waiting for his visas, and he's going to be doing some crazy stuff this summer, some of which we can share. Some of it's not allowed to be spoken because of how secret and stuff things are happening. And I'm like, man, your life is so cool. Um, And uh, we had had talked. He he was up here even last year and things like that. But he's a friend of mine from from college. Ironically, his last name is college. But uh, uh, we've known each other forever. And uh, one of those friendships, and I don't know if you have these or not, but it's one of those friendships you pick up the phone, um, even if it's around the world, and we are just like in the exact same spot every single time. I'm like, How's, how are you doing? And he'll share some things, and, and I'll share some things. We're right in the same pocket. We're right in the same groove. Spiritually, God's showing us always the same kind of things and the same kind of deal at the same kind of time. And so, and I'm telling you, it was just, I spent probably an hour and a half with him on the phone, and... Uh, it was just so recharging and so refreshing to be like, man, just to unload all my stuff on somebody and him to unload his on me. And, and it's just this really cool friendship that at the end of every phone call, and I don't say this to some guys, but you know, to this guy, uh, we always say, man, I love you. Man, I, just, I feel like we just got such a, a really cool friendship that, that's been built over the years and we've been through some stuff together and, and um, just a really, really amazing friendship. And so this morning, I'm going to hope and pray that this morning isn't so much of a go do this kind of sermon. Um, this is hopefully more of an encouragement of the kind of friend that you have in Christ. Um, and, and hopefully, not only in Christ, but that you can find in this world as well that can be that friend. And, and what it takes to be that kind of friend, we're going to talk about that 
this morning. So 1 Samuel chapter 20 is where we'll be this morning. And I'm just going to kind of go verse by verse as we normally do through this this section. And uh, this morning, um, I want you to, again, keep thinking in the idea of friendship, right? That we have this amazing friend in Christ, but also he's given us the opportunity to be friends with those in this world as well. So 1 Samuel chapter 20, we've just left the scene of David fleeing from Saul, and Saul is laying face down and naked, and he's run away as a result of this, this time in Saul's life. And so David in verse 1 of second, of 1 Samuel 20 is where we pick up. Then David fled from Naoth in Ramah and came and said, and said before Jonathan, what have I done? What is my guilt and what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? He says, what, what have I done? What, what issue does he have with me? Like, I've been playing music for him. Is it the music? Is it, is it I'm not around enough? What is it that this guy just absolutely flat out hates me? And he goes to Jonathan, who we saw Jonathan earlier, and Jonathan was there with Goliath and things like that, and, and he, he knew what was happening, and he actually gave uh, all of his stuff to David and said, I'm, I'm, I'm submitting to your kingship is what Jonathan knew early on. And so he comes back to Jonathan, the only friend he has left in the world. His, his wife he can't go back to. We, we talked about that. Uh, his father-in-law wants to kill him. He's lost everything of his own family. And now he's um, trying to figure out, where do I go? What do I do? And he goes to the only friend he has left, and that is Jonathan. And he comes to Jonathan, and he said to him, far from it, this is Jonathan's words to David, far from it, you, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And, and why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. And we, we know this, right? Because, because early on, earlier in a chapter ahead of this, this we saw that Saul actually said to Jonathan, I'm not going to kill him. We're good. I'm fine. We're not going to take him out on him. But something changed in Saul, and David knew something changed in Saul, and the fact that he's got hit men and other things around him. And he's saying, we're good. David, we're, we're, we're good. He, he's fine. We're not going to do this. But David vowed him in verse 3. But David vowed again, saying, your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is a, but a step between me and death. As you read verses 1 through 4, here's the amazing thing I love about David. This is... I. I fall in love with this guy more and more just because of what his character is like, right? So the guy's on the run from his life, and the first thing he does is he comes to Jonathan, and he doesn't come to Jonathan going, what's up? Why, what's the deal? Why, I, you know, I'm innocent. Why, why all this stuff? He comes to him, and he actually seeks this kind of like, have I done something? There's a humility in David as he comes in friendship to Jonathan and says, have I done something? Is there something I need to be aware of? Is there some sin that I'm not aware of that I need to get straight and Jonathan's like, no, no, it's nothing like that. And David's like, well, something's up because he's coming to take my life. And then we go into verses 5 through 11, and here's where we read part 1 of plan 1, okay? This is the plan, this is the plan of part 1 of, of their story of try to figure out, we're going to try and get to the bottom of this. We're going to try and figure out what's happening here. We're going to try and figure out why this is all happening. So David said to Jonathan, verse 5, well, behold, let's look. Tomorrow is a new moon, and I should not fail to sit at the table with the king, but let me go that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked me, asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says good, it will be well with your servant, but if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. 
Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me, for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, far be it from you. I knew that it was determined by my father. Sorry, if I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? And then David said to Jonathan, who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, come, let us go into the field. So they both went out into the field. So part one of this plan, there's two parts. He hasn't said the second part yet, but the first part of the plan is we need to figure out what the truth is. So the first part of the plan is David's going to be missing from the, ta- missing from the table. This is a yearly kind of thing. This thing is uh, a big, big ceremony that would last for about three or four days. And day one was a day that was basically, it was really set apart as holy. You're going to find out here in a second why that's important, but it's holy and set apart, and so you had to be clean, holy, before you went into this dinner, but then you were expected to be at the dinner two or three times throughout the, the, the ceremony, and David would have been expected to be there, and so he makes up a story and says, hey, if Saul asks where I'm at, just tell him I went home for this whole annual sacrifice thing, this whole annual festival. I went home to be with family, and I'll be back after this thing is all finished up. And so part one of the plan was that they would actually try and get this thing dealt with. Now, here's the interesting part, though, in verse 8. It says, Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill, kill me yourself, or why should, why should you bring me to your father? Two things. One, there's a covenant being made, and that's an important thing, because covenants were part of the Old Testament, and they were a binding uh, resolution. This is something that God made with Abraham early on. This is something that God made with Moses. There's, there, were, there were covenants that were made all the way back even with the Noah, Novitic covenant, and there was covenants that God says, I will do my part, you'll do your part. And there were some covenants, like the one with Abraham, that God said, I will do everything. I will be the most faithful. I will be the one that takes all of the, the, the bloodshed. I will be the one that dies in your place. And I will be the one that does these things. And so David is entering into a covenant with Jonathan. It's a pact. It's a, it's a binding resolution that we are for one another. And this covenant was a big deal. So much so that David says, if I break this covenant, if there is guilt in me, then you are feel, feel free to kill me. Feel free to end this friendship, Right? Now, many of us do that, right? I mean, it'd be kind of weird today if you're kind of like, hey, can we be friends? I got this covenant you need to sign. And so you make up this mock document, and then you put all the things in the document that if one of us decides not to be a cool friend, then, you know, we're out or, you know, kill them or whatever that works, right? We don't really think of that this way, but that would have been a big deal for Jonathan. This covenant would have been a big deal. And the truth of the matter is, it meant that his friendship was ruthlessly faithful. In other words, this kind of friendship was not just kind of a run-of-the-mill. This was a friendship that was extremely, extremely faithful. That no matter what happens, we're not breaking this covenant. No matter what, we are going to be friends. And I think the beautiful thing is you see where this is going with Christ. When, when Christ takes you into a relationship with himself, he says, I promise, I promise that I will be ruthlessly faithful to you. Even when we who serve Jesus are completely not faithful God says, Jesus says, I will be faithful to you. And not just faithful, but faithful enough to make the first move. David was the first to bring the conversation. David was the first to to get the plan together. David was the first to try and put everything, sin, in front of him. He was the first one to make the first move. And I say that friends who are really faithful are there. They're going to make the first move. Now, 
now this may be a little too close to home, but I, but I could probably imagine, if you're much like me, that there have been friendships where something has gone down in that friendship, and something has happened in that friendship, and you're kind of, there's this weird break in the friendship. Things aren't as good as they used to be, and there's every indication in your heart that something needs to change, but yet it's that first initial thing of, do I make the move? Does somebody else make the move? Do I wait for them to call me? Do I call them? Do I stop over? Is it too soon? How do I bind and fix this friendship? This isn't just an adult thing, by the way. Students in the room, you're going to go through this many, many times. It's called middle school. It's called high school. You're going to be many, many friends in your world that they become jerks, and you have to figure out, do I still want to be friends with them? Do I still want to hang out with them? And there are going to be times where these friends hurt your feelings, right? If it hasn't happened already, it will. It's fantastic. It's great. And, and as this happens in your life, your mom and dad are kind of similar, right? Uh, when we have friends that hurt our feelings, there's a decision that we have to make. Do we make the first move? Do we say, man, I feel like something's off between us. Are we okay? And as simple as that sounds from a stage... It is one of the hardest things to do in life, isn't it? It's one of the hardest conversations to have, where you're like, are we good? Because you, sometimes you don't want to know the answer, because you're like, I, don't, I think we're not good, but I don't want to know. And so we, we wait to make that first move. But David, with Jonathan, makes the first move, and he says, yeah, we are good, and I'm going to show you that we, we're going to work through this together. So, Friendship is, is ruthlessly, ruthlessly faithful, and with David and Jonathan, it's a friendship that is willing to take the first move. So, in verse 12 to 13, and then we move on to the next section here. In verses 12, 13, actually going on even into 17, this is a weird section in your Bibles. Um, many commentators will say this section kind of got added later. Many will say it's part of the original. And the reason they say that is because it's this weird break in the story. So the story's going along. David and Jonathan are going to find out about their dad. They're going to tell the story about going to the festival and the feast. But then right in the middle of it, right when, Dave, right when Jonathan says, come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. Right when they're about to go to the field, there's a break in the story. And this is an important break. And so we're not going to spend a ton of time, but I want to explain just this piece of 12 to 17 with you. Um, He says, Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father, in other words, when I, when I get the truth, when I go through this thing, we figure out what's really happening about this time tomorrow, the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. That's a big statement. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I, may, that I may not die. In other words, he could lose his life if he goes through this. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of his enemies of David from the face of the earth. Now, this is an interesting conversation. A lot of you guys are like, well, I'm, I'm bored already. Stick with me. This is important. This is important because Jonathan is saying to David, David, I acknowledge that you are king and that God is on your side. Since God is on your side, since God is going to destroy all of your enemies off the face of the earth, which is what he does with kings, he's acknowledging that David is king. He's acknowledging his worth uh, as king before David is even king. And he says, 
because of this, promise to me that you will show me, this is a fun word, steadfast love of the Lord. That steadfast love of the Lord, that was used predominantly in covenants, predominantly used of Yahweh, predominantly used in the Old Testament as a binding thing that showed the undisturbed, resolute love of God towards his people. David, just like God has not left you, I want you to not leave me. May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. This is an important piece, and I think we can sometimes get rid of it because it doesn't match sometimes maybe the story. But honestly, this is part of the story. This is the covenant. This is faithful enough to remind ourselves that David is making a covenant with Jonathan, and Jonathan is making a covenant with David. And it was meant to be a binding thing till death kind of idea. And then he uses this weird kind of language in 17. And and I want to make sure that we understand the Bible clearly this morning. I want to make sure that we understand hermeneutics well this morning. And I want to kind of put before you something that has been tossed out um, as regards to this passage and others like it. So in verse 17... There's an interesting phrase, and he says, And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Many will look at the life of Jonathan and David in the secular world, and and they'll start to kind of make some accusations and some assumptions. He'll look at this thing, and he says he made a covenant, and we know that. But then they'll take this weird thing of he loved him as he loved his own soul, and they'll look at other passages. We're going to look at those as well. And they'll start to make some assumptions. One of the commentators I'm actually using for this series is uh, a guy that, uh, he's not really a commentary, he's more of like a historian, but he has no faith base at all. And so it's kind of interesting reading a historian's comment on this. And he says this in one of his, um, one of his things on this passage. He says, uh, he, he quotes an uh, Episcopal priest here, and he says, We have every reason to believe that a homosexual relationship existed, argues Tom Horner, Bible scholar and Episcopal priest, with rare rare bluntness. Yeah, it's pretty blunt. Seminary professors must consider it, as well as must must the diagnosis of ancient male love. He's making the assumption, and maybe you've heard it, maybe you haven't, but many are out there claiming that this David and Jonathan thing was actually this, this relationship that went past the normal bounds. And, and many believe that, that, that that's kind of the idea that he's talking about when they say that he, he loved him and he swore his, his love for him. We'll read later that uh, as they leave, they actually end in a kiss. And you're kind of like, well, that's kind of weird. Uh, and then you read other places, such as Second uh, Samuel chapter 1, verse 26. Uh, you read that David loved Jonathan more than, his, more than the love of a woman. He says, if I, have dis- if I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan, this is at Jonathan's death. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of a woman. And many will start to take and start to kind of go down this road of some, some applying today's culture to what was back then. Now, here's the interesting thing, though. When, whether you read that or whether you read that they kissed one another and wept one another, David weeping the most, as we'll read in, 20, in verse 41, 
You need to understand, let's just kind of take this piece by piece. Loving him has loved his own soul. That, that we can kind of say, well, I get that. It's kind of a deep friendship. Not so much there. The idea of weeping and kissing together, that's kind of weird. But at the same time, if you think culturally back then, 2 Samuel 14.33, Genesis 31, Acts 20, where Paul is leaving the Ephesian elders, and all the Ephesian elders come to Paul, and it says they kissed one another as they left. Um, in Romans 16.16, 16, this is kind of fun. We should establish this back into church world. Romans 16.16 16 says that we are to greet one another with a holy kiss. That'd be fun. Like you walk into service and you're kind of like, hey, and everybody's like, that's weird, right? And today's culture, we're kind of like, dudes don't do that to dudes. It's kind of a weird thing. And, and yet it's just kind of a weird phenomenon. First Corinthians 16, 20 says it again. Second Corinthians 13, 12. First Thessalonians, Thessalonians 5, 26. All of these have to do with this cultural thing of kissing. And this was not meant to be applied into some weird sexual way when it comes into Jonathan and David. This was meant to be what it was culturally. There was a deep grief and a deep leaving. And it was formally, actually, this idea of kissing was actually far more of a entering and exiting of a relationship. When you went into church, you would greet one another with the Holy Kiss. As you left, you would do the same thing. So that'd be kind of weird. Like you walk into church, everybody's like, hey, how are you? You leave, you're like, hey, see you next week. And you're kind of like, all right, cool. Uh, but that's, that's kind of a cultural thing. It's not meant to be taken into our context and applying our culture and our context onto Scripture. And that's an important thing as we talk about hermeneutics. Because in hermeneutics, there is a couple things you need to understand. And this is a freebie. This is a sidebar. But in hermeneutics, you have to look first off at the author's intent. What did the author of 1 Samuel mean or want you to understand as he put this in front of you? He wanted you to understand the deep cultural ramifications of Jonathan and David's friendship. It was, it was pure, it was awesome, it was the most faithful friendship you could ever see, and it was put in terms so that we would understand that as the original audience would have understood it. Does that make sense? So we want to understand the author's intent. We want to understand how would the original hearers of 1 Samuel, of the Old Testament, understand what he is saying. Second thing you need to do is you need to look at context. You need to look at the chapter around it. What's it saying? You need to look at the book and the whole book of 1 Samuel. That's why I went even into 2 Samuel, because then you can start to see this other thing that he gives at at Jonathan's funeral. And then you go from the, the book to the Old Testament to the New Testament. That's how you get your theology. It is a terrible way, and I need to say this, it is a terrible way to get your theology by one verse in one chapter and then declare that that is exactly the truth. Does that make sense? You cannot take one verse from one section, throw it into today's culture, and say that's exactly what he meant. And that is unfortunately what this Episcopal priest was doing. He was taking one verse out of one culture and putting it into our time and saying that's exactly what it means. We can't do that. We have to look at the the chapter, the verse, the book, the old, the new, and see how this all plays out and to understand that there is nothing, let's just put that to bed, there is nothing of an inappropriate relationship between Jonathan and David. There's just nothing there. And many people can try and argue it, but it's very clear as you look at the chapter and the verse and those around it, there is nothing to validate it. David and Jonathan had a friendship that was so amazingly close that I think at times it probably would have weirded us out, but it's a friendship that we all need. Somebody who would stick by him no matter what, and that was what they had. So, 
That was a complete sidebar, but in case you heard that somewhere out there, you needed to know the truth behind it. That is not what was happening. The truth is Jonathan and David had a raw, raw, strong friendship, and that's all there was to it. Verse 18. We're picking back up again. Breathe. Here we go. Okay, verse 18. Then Jonathan said to him, tomorrow is a new moon, and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid. So basically, let me give you the, the snapshot. First Samuel 20, 18 to 23. This is the second part of the plan. First part of the plan, you're going to go to dinner. You're going to try and get the truth. Second part of the, di- the second part of the plan is, hey, I'm going to go out with my archery thing. I, I do archery a lot, so I'm going to take my bow and my arrow out, and I'm going to start doing some shots, and they're gonna start, the arrows are going to start going. And here's the deal. If I shoot an arrow and it lands in front of you or beside you, then you need to know that uh, things are okay, you're good. If I shoot the arrow beyond you, if it goes behind you, then you need to just take off because things aren't safe for you. That's kind of the plan. And he says, you'll know this because I'm, gonna, I'm a good shot, <laughs> and I'll know where it's going to go. I won't hit you. If it hits you, that's a whole other plan. Like, <laughs> that's not in there. Um, but if, if it goes beyond you, then just take off, we're good. So he does so. He says, that's kind of the plan. That's what we're going to do. And so he, he says, let's go with both these plans. And as for the matter which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between me and you forever. Okay. So verse 24. So David hid himself in the field. And when the new moon king came, the king sat down to eat his food. And the king, this is Saul, sat at his seat as at other times on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat, sat opposite. So let's just put yourself here. This is fun. You're at dinner. Your dad is the king. He's at this wall. You're at the other side, opposite side of the king, and David's supposed to be somewhere in the middle. David doesn't show, and Saul notices that David's not there. So, Jonathan sat on the other side. Abner and David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, something has happened to him, being David. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. So he's thinking, okay, so this is a holy day. There's a lot of things that can make him unclean, so he's not here. Perhaps David touched something that was unclean of a human or an animal, or maybe he ate flesh from a peace offering, or maybe he ate an ox or ate a sheep or ate a goat or, 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 or touched an insect or something that made him unclean, which is all part of the laws. You should read your Bibles. It's really interesting. It, maybe he did something that made him unclean, so he's not here day one. Cool. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? And Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked me to leave to go to Bethlehem, and he told him the story. He said, let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city. So now if I have favor in your eyes, let me go away and seek my brother. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. So he gives him the explanation. He says, he's in Bethlehem. He's done this thing. He's with his family. He just needed excused. He mentioned it to me. He didn't say anything to you. And then verse 30. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said, this is fun, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. I don't know who you offended more with that statement, Jonathan or his wife, but both of them, it gets better. You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, to which I'm sure if the queen was there, she's like, what? Um, Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to be your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? What? Saul? And... For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. 
Then Jonathan answered Saul as his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? And immediately, verse 33, he does his favorite thing. Saul takes up his spear and throws it at his son. Jonathan tries to kill him. And you're like, again, with the spear thing. Like, we've got to get the spears out of the castle. Like, no, why has nobody thought of this? Like, he's done this numerous times. Get the spears and block them in a closet somewhere because he's got a problem. And he throws them at Jonathan, and he tries to kill his own son as a result of his friendship with David. Now, here's a couple things that this son, Jonathan, did for his friend, David. And there are three big things in verse 30 and 31 that are really, really important. First off, a good friend in this situation with Jonathan is able to take on the guilt and the shame of what Saul says to him in this thing. He's faithful enough, first off, to take off all the embarrassment, right? Imagine being around the council and everybody that's around this huge dignified table and you Put yourself in that situation. Your dad just loses it, right? Your friends are around the table. Everybody's around this table that's important, and your dad loses it. And he says, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame? That's embarrassing. That's hard to come around. He's he's called him out in front of everybody, and he's made him feel really, really small. The second thing he says, he's able as a good friend to, to take on the shame of it. He says, and to the shame of your mother's nakedness. He says, you are, you are a disgrace to humanity. You're a disgrace to me. I want nothing to do with you. And as a good friend, he didn't say a word. He didn't say one thing about David or a bad thing about him. He just took all of Saul's anger, rebellious and nakedness and shame, and all this is thrown on him. And then the last thing not only does he take the embarrassment and the shame, but he also takes on the temptation for David. And you may not catch this, but here's what 31 says. For as long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. The, first, the third thing Saul throws at him, one, he tries to embarrass him. Secondly, he tries to call him out and shame him. The third thing he tries to do, he says, if you keep this up, the kingdom's not going to you. All the riches, all of the things that are come with the be, idea of being king, I'm not going to give them to you. I'm going to keep them from you. They're not yours anymore. The keys to the kingdom are mine to give. You're not going to get them. And that would have been a huge temptation for Jonathan to say, okay, do I go with David or do I go with a palace and a kingship and rule and, and, and taking over the country? David, country, David, country, David, riches, David, money and wives and all that I could ever want and imagine. And there's a huge temptation of Jonathan, but Jonathan, to his credit, and as the narrator says, there is not a hint of doubt in him. He says, why do you want to do this? And immediately, immediately Saul tries to kill his own son. Verse 34, and Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had, here's the word, disgraced him, right? He'd embarrassed him. He'd made him feel small. He'd made him feel nothing. And, and here's the beautiful thing. He not only grieved, he didn't eat, which many believe that he actually fasted and prayed and for David, not for himself, not for the fact that he just lost the kingdom, not for the fact that his father's insane, none of that. He grieved for his friend, for his friend. He grieved for David and said, David is what matters here. And so as you see, then the the story continues. Now Jonathan has to break the news to David. And in the morning, Jonathan went out to the field to the appointment with David and with with, with the little boy, and the boy was going to run and get the arrows kind of thing. And he said to the boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, 
Jonathan called after the boy and said, is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came back to his master, but the boy knew nothing. Genius. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said to him, go carry them to the city. Verse 41. This is when the music was started. This is when the, the, the camera would zoom in. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept one another. And David weeping the most. Then David said to Jonathan, Jonathan said to David, go in peace because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord saying, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed and Jonathan went into the city. Friendship has a cost here. It has repercussions. And this had to be a devastating blow for David and for Jonathan both. One, Jonathan knew now that he was going to be on the run from his own father. He knew that he was always going to have to watch his back around his dad because now he knew that everything was out in the open. Jonathan also knew that he had nobody else to confide in because David was gone. And here, from here on out, David is on the run. From here on out, David will have everybody around him that wants to kill him or take him out. And David has just lost everything. There's no kingdom. There's no kingship. All that he has left was a friend, and that friend is gone. And he's had to stay behind. And so a good friend will know the sake of the friendship and say, I'm going to follow after God or what he wants more than the sake of the friendship. And David sought what God wanted, and that was to be alive, to be the king. And Jonathan sought what God wanted, and that was to be David's friend and, and to shove him out into that, that wilderness area, knowing what was ahead of David. And yet both of them trusting in this covenant they made before God. And I think that all of these things that we've just looked at, the idea of being faithful enough, the idea of taking the embarrassment, the guilt, and the shame are all of what Christ has done for us on our behalf. So when we go back to John chapter 15 and he says, I call you friends, I think, again, we can take our cultural expectations of friend and put them onto that passage. But I think it might be healthier to look at examples in Scripture of friendships with God and say that is what he's offering to us. God said he was friends with Abraham. God says he was friends with Moses. God shows us a biblical example of what friendship looks like here in this passage. And then Jesus promises us in the Gospels, hey, guess what? I am your friend forever. I am the one who sticks closer than a brother. I am the one who will be there no matter what. And so this morning, again, this isn't a, a go and do kind of sermon. This is a, uh, hopefully an encouragement of the kind of God that you serve kind of sermon that you have a God who not only loves you, died for you, went to the cross for you, but here's the cool part. Your God not only loves you, Jesus doesn't just love you, he likes you. (laughs) And for many of us, that's kind of hard sometimes because we think of all the things that he shouldn't like us for, and yet, as a good friend, he likes you. He wants to be your friend. And hopefully it's an encouragement to you this weekend that as you go out, that maybe you can think of these things in your own friendships, and how can I apply these things there? But hopefully you can leave here going, man, if, if, if God took care of Jonathan, if God took care of David, he's promised to be a friend to me, and I can trust him with that. Let me pray for you. God, this morning, um, I pray not only for them, but I pray for myself as well. Uh, God, today, that we would understand the truth of Scripture, that you have called us friends, 
that that is um, not just cliche, um, but God, that it is deep and it is clear that you said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, that you've said that you will be with us through everything that we face. God, I thank you for not just loving us, but liking us. I thank you for the example of Jonathan and for David. God, for reminding us of what deep friendship looks like. God, may we run to you, may we turn to you, knowing that you are able to handle all of these things and more in our own lives. It's in your name we pray. Amen.